All right, so we're going to go ahead and jump back into our series uh, in Ephesians. We're going to start chapter 2 today. All right, so a New York Times article titled, How to Get Out Alive, What the Science of Evacuation Reveals About How Humans Behave in the Worst of Times, tells what researchers have learned about evacuation from disaster survivors. In the case of the doomed trade towers, those who made it out waited for an average of six minutes before evacuating. Some lingered as long as a half an hour. What did they do while they waited? Some helped co-workers, others milled around. The article said many called relatives. About 1,000 took the time to shut down their computers. At least 70% of survivors spoke with other people before trying to leave. One lesson that was in spite of a previous attack on the towers and various efforts to make evaluation effect, uh, evacuation effective, less than half of the survivors knew there were three stairwells in the building and less than half had ever entered a stairwell. One investigator said, I found the lack of preparedness shocking. One woman, Aliyah Zedino, who was on the 73rd floor of the Tower One, heard a booming explosion and felt the building actually launch to the south, as if it might topple, the article stated. You might expect that her next instinct was to flee, but she had the opposite reaction. What I really wanted was for someone to scream back, everything is okay, don't worry, it's in your head. Fortunately, at least one of Zedino's colleagues responded differently. The answer I got was another coworker screaming, get out of the building. She remembers now. Almost four years later, she still thinks about that command. My question is, what would I have done if the person had said nothing? This world is going to end. The Bible promises it will happen when people least expect it. But God's word also gives clear directions on how to get out alive. We can't afford to keep quiet. People's lives are on the line. What an interesting thing to think about how a person reacts in an emergency situation. Obviously, from the article, not everyone reacts the same way. Some people stay calm. Some panic. Some try to save themselves while others try to save other people. It made me wonder, what type of reaction would I have? I mean, I would like to think that I would be a hero, but maybe not. Would I respond as though I were already dead? Or would I respond as someone who is still alive? Open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. As I said, we're going to continue our series in Ephesians, which we called... What am I doing here? And since we took a couple of weeks off, let me just remind you that this epistle or this letter was written about AD 60 by the Apostle Paul. He was writing to believers in Ephesus, a city in modern-day Turkey, and he wanted these Christians to understand they were no longer as they were, meaning before Jesus, but in fact, they were something altogether new. They were a people in Christ, people with a new identity. Notice Ephesians 
chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Today we're going to examine some of the details of these verses, observe the principles that are being taught, and as always, we'll try to apply some of this to our lives. Ephesians 2.1 And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. And you he made alive. Who is Paul talking about? Remember in Ephesians 1.13, Paul says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. He is specifically talking about Gentiles who became Christians. People who have received redemption in Jesus. Redemption is deliverance by payment of a price. In the New Testament, redemption refers to salvation from sin, death, and the wrath of God by Christ's sacrifice. Notice these Christians, Paul says, Jesus made alive those who were dead in trespasses and sins. Paul has just described the human condition, the human condition, dead in trespasses and sins. And he's described the blessing of salvation, the blessing of salvation, which is made alive. For those who believe they can save themselves, this passage demonstrates that you cannot. Essentially, a person who is dead can't do anything, much less make themselves alive. This is one of those very important aspects that need to be understood. Because as Paul says to the Ephesians, 2,000 years ago, you were dead before God's grace. And the same is true today and with all people. I like what one commentator said, which was, Paul is not speaking here about physical death, nor only about the sinner's ultimate fate in the second death. What is meant is a real and present death. The most vital part of a person's personality, the spirit, is dead to the most important factor in life, God. What are transgressions and sins? Transgressions are defined as violations of a law, a command, or a duty. Violations of a law, a command, or a duty. In the Old Testament, it means to revolt. Or rebellion. Notice Psalm 32 1 Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. In the New Testament, the word is translated to mean a deliberate breach of the law, a deliberate breach of the law. Notice Romans 4 15 Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
So you could keep it simple and say that a transgression is essentially not following the law. If you get caught speeding, you're going to get a ticket because you broke the law. Sin is also lawlessness or transgression of God's will. Remember, before Adam and Eve broke God's command, there was no sin in the world. But notice Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Adam and Eve were told not to eat of this particular tree, but they did anyway, resulting in the original sin, which infected all future generations. Technically, transgressions and sins are the same thing when it relates to God's commands. A transgression of God's law is rebellion and is sin. The fact that Paul uses both words should impress upon us the importance of this concept because these violations of God's laws result in spiritual death. Paul says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Death, as we all know, means the end of life. However, the Bible is very clear that there is not only one death. In fact, the Bible talks about physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. Sin or rebellion against God is what initiated physical death and the spiritual death. And spiritual death is ultimately being separated from God, being separated from God. Who is the source of all spiritual life? So Paul is reiterating that because of the violation of God's commands, because of the rebellion against God, these Ephesians have been separated from God. And like them, like the Ephesians, we were separated from God because of our transgressions and sins until Jesus Christ made us alive. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper recounts a story his father often told in his days as a fiery Baptist evangelist. It is the story of a man who came to saving faith in Jesus Christ near the end of his earthly existence. Piper writes, the church had prayed for this man for decades. He was hard and resistant, but this time, for some reason, he showed up when my father was preaching. At the end of the service, during a hymn, to everyone's amazement, he came and took my father's hand. They sat down together on the front pew of the church as the people were dismissed. God opened his heart to the gospel of Christ, and he was saved from his sins and given eternal life. But he didn't, it didn't stop him from sobbing and saying as the tears ran down his wrinkled face, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. By the grace of God, even a life that is almost totally wasted can still be redeemed. As a Scottish theologian, Thomas Boston once said, our present existence is only a short preface to a long eternity. If that's true, then this man's life was not wasted after all. He was only just beginning an eternal life of endless praise. But why wait even a moment longer before starting to serve Jesus? You only have one life to live. Don't waste it by living for yourself 
one you can trust and you can use it instead for the glory of God. Don't waste your life by living for yourself, breaking God's laws and indulging in sin. Speaking of transgressions and sins and spiritual death, notice Paul continues by providing some details. Ephesians 2.2, in which, talking about transgressions and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Notice the words, according to. This means to be in accord with, in agreement with, in keeping with, which essentially means that one person is in agreement with another and there's no conflict between them. A good example of being in accord with someone would be a married couple. Typically, they would agree with each other on many different things in order to avoid conflict. The statement Paul is making is that the spiritually dead, the ones who are separated from God, are in agreement with the course of this world, that there is no conflict between them and the world, which then implies there is conflict between the world and those that are alive. The thing that shapes how people view the world, their expectations or how things should work or behave is called their worldview. There's a lot of great information regarding this subject. For example, Focus on the Family, which is a Christian ministry that provides resources to help families become healthier, according to the Bible, stated that a worldview is built on your deepest beliefs and core principles and seeks answers to three questions. Why am I here? What does a good life look like? And do other people matter or only me? And so if we compare the answers to these questions, we might get a better idea of the course of the world. Why am I here according to the course of the world? Many of you are familiar with the name Whoopi Goldberg. Her real name is Karen Elaine Johnson. And she's a pretty famous actress, comedian, and talk show host. She's well known for her leftist worldview. She said on Facebook one time, we're here for a reason. I believe a bit of the reason is to throw little torches out to lead people through the dark. Well, that seems like a very admirable reason to be here, essentially to help others. However, that's only on the surface. Disclaimer, just to be clear, there is a spectrum of beliefs within all worldviews. And this is just a quick sample of one that we call the political left. So again, the political left, such as Whoopi, believe they are here to help others out of the dark. And they do this in part by providing many types of programs for the underprivileged. And again, this seems okay on the surface, but listen to what Thomas Sowell, an American economist, author, social commentator, and a very prominent black conservative said, facts are seldom allowed to contaminate, facts are seldom allowed to contaminate the beautiful vision of the left. 
What matters to the true believers are the ringing slogans endlessly repeated. Darwinian adaptation to the environment applies not only to nature, but also society. Just as you don't find eagles living in the ocean or fish living on mountaintops, so you don't find leftists concentrated where their ideas have to stand the test of performance. According to this statement and the course of this worldview, these well-to-do people want to help others by actually forcing them to live in a way that they themselves are not subject. But the ones who rule or glorify themselves and without any facts. And just to be clear, what is the opposite of a fact? It's a lie. Why am I here according to the Bible? Acts 17.30 Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. The Bible says we are here to be reconciled to God and he commands all people to repent. Repentance means a change of attitude and action from sin toward obedience to God. The overall concept is that I am here to glorify God, not myself as the world does. Notice Psalm 139, 16. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. One source said, according to this verse, God is in control of three things that intimately concern each of us. One, the beginning of each life. Two, the length of each life. And three, the exact plan for each life. The course of the world is selfishness and without truth. And those who are spiritually dead walk in it and seek to glorify themselves, while those who are made alive in Christ delight in glorifying God by making him known to others. What does a good life look like? What does a good life look like according to the course of the world? One quote I read said, your life is what you make it and how you see it. So a good life according to the world depends on your mood. If you're in a good mood, you have a good life. If you're in a bad mood, you have a bad life. And so according to some worldviews, a good life is subjective. For some, it's lots of money. For some, it's love. For some, it's causing trouble. For some, it's this and for some, it's that. There's no way to measure a good life. It's simply based on how you feel about things at a particular point in time. What does a good life look like according to the Bible? Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. According to the Bible, a good life is not about feeling a certain way or completing various actions. It's about loving God. And as one writer wrote, 
He said, allowing his Holy Spirit to transform our hearts and lives. Notice Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The course of the world elevates self and feelings, while those in Christ seek to elevate God and truth. Do other people matter? Or only me, according to the world? <laughs> Human trafficking is defined as the unlawful act of transporting or coercing people in order to benefit from their work or service, typically in the form of forced labor or sexual exploitation. I read an article related to what motivates some people to traffic other people or to force them into this type of slavery. And the article listed 10 motivations, poverty, a lack of education, the demand for cheap labor or sex, a lack of human rights protections, a lack of legitimate economic opportunities, cultural factors, conflict and natural disasters, <laughs> a lack of safe migration options, deception and intimidation, and finally, at the end of the list, profit. So aside from profit, it seems according to the world, what motivates human trafficking has more to do with the person being trafficked than it does with the person doing the trafficking. According to this list, the fact that some people are easily targeted is the bulk of the motivation. And then at the end, maybe a little something about making money. So according to the world, only some people are important. Only some people are important and others are not depending on their situation. According to one source, it is estimated that between 15,000 and 50,000 women and children <laughs> It's brutal. 15,000 to 50,000 women and children are forced into sexual slavery in the United States every year. And the total number varies widely because it's very difficult to research. The Justice Department, the Justice Department's Office of Justice Programs announced recently they're gonna spend $90 million to combat human trafficking that sounds really nice, or does it? Americans spend, on average, $86 million a year in Alaska watching whales. Just a little shy of the money used to fight human trafficking. That's how much people matter, according to the world. Just a tad more than whales. <laughs> Do other people matter or only me, according to the Bible? According to the Bible, the value of people, 
The value of human beings is intrinsic, meaning it is natural. Something you are born with, not something that is determined by the situation you might be in or what some other person might think it is. It is intrinsic in that you are made in the image of God. Notice Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is why God says you are not to murder other people. This is why Christians fight against abortion or fight against those who would exploit children, the disabled and the elderly. According to God, all people matter, not just some. Paul reminds his readers that before Jesus, before being saved, we all walked in transgression and sin according to this world. And even though we may not have done some of the things I mentioned before, we did in fact walk according to this world. And notice, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. The New Living Translation says it like this, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. This is a tough thing to accept. Most people want to believe that we live in a world that has the potential for greatness, the potential for humans to use their supreme intellect and fix things up and make the world a better place. But according to this passage, the world is under the power of the devil, of the prince of the power of the air. One commentator said he is the ruler of the realm said to be of the air. Taken literally, this would signify the atmosphere around the earth, which according to ancient cosmology was the abode of demons. Essentially meaning the whole earth is under his command and in rebellion against God. Called the sons of disobedience. Disobedience means to refuse to obey authority. It means to refuse to obey authority. Or in this case, a refusal to obey God. I read about whining cats that illustrate our disobedience. The cats in my house, the writer said, sure live a cushy life. Recently, as my cats watched beautiful snowflakes falling from above, they wanted to go outside and enjoy it. I tried to tell them they don't really want to go outside and that it's in their best interest to stay inside. I tried to tell them it's cold out there and you're not used to the cold and eventually you'd freeze to death. But they sat there whining in such a pitiful tone that I, out of sheer distraction, let them out. And minutes, they wanted back in. Then minutes later, they again noticed the snow falling and wanted back out. 
I call them the yo-yo creatures. These cats pray to me, their Lord and master, for what they think they just have to have. It's fairly clear that they think I exist solely to give what they desire. They covet the snow, and I explain to them, you think you want out, but I know something you don't understand. Stay in here with me. It's warm and safe in here, and you will find rest for your souls. And while you're at it, stop fighting over the water bowl. I promise plenty of water for you. And our relationship with God, aren't we just like those cats? As, as, as Isaiah almost said, all we like sheep or cats have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. We are constantly bombarded with the lusts and desires this fallen world has to offer. And Paul reminds us that the sons of disobedience conduct themselves in these temptations. Notice Ephesians 2.3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others Lust is defined as a desire for what is forbidden. It's a desire for what is forbidden and an obsessive sexual craving. God has given people legitimate desire. But as one writer states, lust refers to the desire for things that are contrary to the will of God. Things that are contrary to the will of God. Matthew 5.28, but I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And flesh is designed as the physical bodies of humans or animals. In general, this word means parts of the body, a person's whole body, or even all of mankind, and is generally referred to as weak. Psalm 56, 4, in God... I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? One article I read said this. Desires that arise from the fact that we are earthbound, fleshly creatures are not sins in themselves. We desire food, water, shelter, sex, and comfort. God created us with those desires. However, we are born sinful, desiring to please ourselves regardless of God's moral law. When fleshly desires rule us, taking priority over God's will, they cause us to violate God's righteousness. They become lusts. For example, hunger propels people to find food. Eating is good. It's not a sin. Jesus ate and drank when he was on earth. But when hunger becomes a lust for food, it turns into gluttony, which is sinful. When natural sexual desires turn perverse, they lead to homosexuality, adultery, fornication, and other sexually related sins. Those are lusts of the flesh. 
According to Paul, without Jesus, a person lusts for fleshly desires to the point of disobeying God. A well-known example of lust is found in the story of David and Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David saw Bathsheba, a married woman, bathing on a rooftop and became overwhelmed with desire for her. He sent for her, committed adultery with her, got her pregnant, and then he killed her husband. His lust went from a thought to a desire, to adultery, to deceit, to murder. Eventually, David did realize he had sinned against God and he begged forgiveness, which is the only course of action once sin has been committed. A person has to seek God's forgiveness and grace. Ephesians 2.3, among whom also we all want conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Without Jesus Christ, people are under the judgment of God, and because of their sinful rebellion against God, all people deserve his wrath. Which is why Paul says that people without Jesus, by nature, are children of wrath. Thank God for mercy. Thank God for Jesus. I read an article called The Children's Poem. Points to Christ's sacrificial love. As a child, I loved the evenings that the kids in our family would sit by the um, father's chair while he read us stories aloud. One of our favorites was a poem, The Highwayman. The poem tells of an adventurer who robs the coaches of English aristocrats. The daring highwayman is in love with the, the innkeeper's daughter, and by night, when the coast is clear, he courts her. The authorities learn of the romance, and one twilight, before the highwayman arrives, British soldiers invade the inn. They tie the innkeeper's daughter at the window so the highwayman will see her and believe the way is safe. Then, lest she try to warn her love in any way, the soldiers gagged the maid and tie a musket at her heart that will fire at the slightest movement. The highwayman comes riding, unaware of the muskets that await to cut him down. The highwayman gallops over, closer to his destruction. He sees his love at the window. She hears his horse's hooves on the lane. The soldiers cock their muskets, nearer to the arms he loves, nearer to his destruction. The highwayman comes riding. Then just as he's about to enter musket range, a premature shot rings out, warning him to turn back. The highwayman reigns and turns as the frustrated soldiers shoot a futile volley. All the muskets fire, but only one found its mark. The one true shot was from the musket that fired the warning. The musket aimed at the heart of the innkeeper's daughter. She warned at the expense of her life, and the warning was the expression of a great love. The cross stands both as God's ultimate warning of the consequences of sin and as the greatest expression of his love for sinners. If God did not love, he would not so graciously warn. The cross is the fatal cry of a savior to those who he loves 
And he wants to turn from the evil that will do them great harm. Principle one, Christians were dead, but now are alive. Before accepting Jesus Christ as your savior, you were dead, as Paul stated, spiritually separated from God. But now you are not dead, not spiritually separated from God. Notice 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Here are a couple of ways in which you can live your life as a born-again Christian. First, read the word of God every day. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Second, attend church regularly. First John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And three, be a witness to those who are still dead. Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And last, let love cover as much as you can. 1 Peter 4, 8, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Principle two, Christians were walking according to the world but now should not. It's difficult to evaluate your life and pluck out the things we know should not be there, especially if they have some deep-rooted meaning to us. But the reality is we need to remove as much of the evil from our lives as we can. Acts 5.29, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. It's not always easy, but we have to build our houses on a solid foundation, as Jesus said. And so we have to learn the truth, and we have to reject what is false. We have to learn the truth, and we have to reject what is false. Luke 6, 48, he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vermintly against the house. And could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. We have to turn from the world and to the word. In principle three, Christians were conducting themselves in the lust of the flesh, but now should not. This is one of those things that will require you to dig down deep and put forth effort. The evil one knows how to tempt people, especially as it relates to lustful desires. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings and experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Notice, be sober and vigilant and resist him. 
resist him, the devil. One commentator said, the Christian response to satanic opposition is not panic or flight, but firm resistance in faith. Essentially, we as Christians have to demonstrate our positive faith and trust in God. Simple recap. Read the Bible. Go to church. Share the gospel. Let love guide you. Acknowledge God's truth and resist the devil. C.S. Lewis talks to a dog about lust. People sometimes think of Christian morality as a straitjacket, he says, as if God gave us random commands that we must keep in order to prove our devotion to him. C.S. Lewis addressed this viewpoint in a letter he wrote on September 12, 1933 to his good friend, Arthur Greaves. Lewis was no stranger to lust and sexual temptation, and neither was Greaves, who experienced same-sex attraction. Lewis gave the following illustration. Supposing you are taking a dog on a leash through a turnstile or past a post. You know what happens. Apart from his usual ceremonies in passing a post, he tries to go to the wrong side and gets his head looped around the post. You see that he can't do it and therefore you pull him back. You pull him back because you want to enable him to go forward. He wants exactly the same thing, namely to go forward. For that very reason, he resists your pullback. Or if he's an obedient dog, yields to it reluctantly as a matter of duty, which seems to him to be quite in opposition to his own will. Though in fact, it is only by yielding to you that he will ever succeed in getting where he wants. The dog believes the lie that the only way forward, the only way to get what he wants is to push ahead. Lewis, the dog owner, affirms the longing of the dog to go forward, but he must pull the dog back in order for it to actually make any progress. So what should you do when you fall into sin? Ask for forgiveness and redirection. Lewis continued, you may go the wrong way again and again. God may forgive you as the dog's master may forgive the dog after he has tied the whole leash around the lamppost. But there is no hope in the end of getting where you want to go except by going God's way. Let's pray. Holy Father, God in heaven, thank you so much for your goodness and kindness. Thank you so much for your word and for teaching us what we need to know, for giving us the opportunity to be reconciled to you. Words can't express our gratitude for what Jesus has done for us on the cross, Lord. It's my hope and prayer that we focus on that sacrifice every day and that we guide our life based on that sacrifice. That the decisions we make that impact us and our family and our loved ones would be guided by your love and by your will and not by our own desire. 
Help us, Father, to live the life that you want for us and not the life that our sinful nature desires. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.